I've said it often and time doesn't change my mind, but one of the most captivating and thrilling experiences that I've ever had is to watch the birth of our four children. Now, watching a child pass the birth canal and take the first breath is riveting. You are totally alive. You don't yawn your way through that. Following the birth of our firstborn, I was so pumped, I said to Beth, while she's laying there, comatose virtually, that was amazing. I can't wait to do that again. (laughs) Dumb Dan learned there are appropriate times to express such joy, and there are times, well, that wasn't one of them. Uh, Beth was very gracious, and our marriage has survived. And indeed, we had that joy again in God's mercy. But you can hardly be more alive than when you're watching a child born. And you can hardly, in a very different way, be more alive than when you watch someone die. It also is a riveting experience. You don't yawn your way through it. To watch a human being slip the bonds of earth and enter into eternity, exhaling for that last time. That's a gripping experience. You're fully awake. In a sad and heart-wrenching sense, you're never more alive than when you watch someone die. And never was this reality more evident than for those people who watched Jesus of Nazareth die on a Roman cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. As Luke narrates this riveting scene, he carefully records the watchful responses of a number of people that were there that day. By this means, Luke subtly invites us in on the scene as well. We are watching those who watch, but in a sense, through them, we also watch as Jesus breathes His last. And we don't yawn our way through it. We certainly should not. And I would contend that to grasp the significance of this riveting death scene is to be fully alive. As we come to Luke chapter 23 today, the Roman governor in Jerusalem gives in to the murderous will of the Jewish leaders and sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. Roman soldiers flogged Jesus with a whip of several strands. It was studded with bone and or metal. And those strips would have ripped the flesh off of Jesus' back. They pounded into his skull a crown of thorns, and he bled profusely. They punched him. They spit on him. They mocked him. The Roman soldiers then eventually escort Jesus to the place of execution. And we pick up the account here in verse 26 of Luke 23 as Jesus journeys to what they call the skull. Verse 26, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene from North Africa who was coming in from the country and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus who was too weakened to continue carrying this heavy beam to the place where the post had already been inserted into the ground and stood waiting 
for these criminals, Jesus being one of them. In verse 27, there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. The Greek words here in the original text indicate they were pounding their chest with grief. It was a a sign of grief and perhaps even a physical aid to the grief that they were experiencing. They were singing dirges, wailing out songs of lament. Nothing like we have uh, in parallel in our culture. But in some cultures this continues to happen. This wailing and these dirges. There were known to be women in Israel who would gather for this very purpose as young Jewish men were executed by the Romans. And so they gather around Jesus as He makes His way to the skull. Verse 28, But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It be a study in itself to look at how Jesus thinks of others in the midst of of His excruciating trials that He faces here in these last hours of His life. But here again, He does not look at Himself in a self-pitying way, but He looks to them. He says, God's judgment will fall here upon all of you. It's not wrong for them to weep for Him. He doesn't mean that. Don't weep for me in that sense, that you're doing something wrong. But He wants them to know that they too are in trouble. What Christ has prophesied and what He knows is that the Roman nation is going to judge Israel. It will be in the hand of God a judgment for the rejection of Christ in part. And in 70 A.D., Rome would destroy Jerusalem and conquer the Jews. It would be a time of severe suffering and Jesus sees this in some level. He said there's a day coming when you're going to actually say better not to have children. So that they don't have to face this. There's a day coming when you're going to say, better not to have children that we need to get out of this city in our escape. The day is coming of great misery. The Jews, indeed, verse 30, will plead for an earthquake to bury them and to end their misery. The proverb of verse 31, a little difficult to understand, there's debated meaning, but generally in some way, whether the judge is God or Rome or both, Jesus graciously warns these women, His torturous death is a precursor of the judgment that will soon befall the entire nation. Weep, He says, for yourselves. This is a difficult time for me, but for you. Luke now steers the focus of the narrative to the two individuals we've discussed and thought about already. They had a front row seat to Jesus' execution, didn't they? Verse 32, we find the setting in the, first, the next two verses. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, 
There they crucified him and the two criminals. One on his right, one on his left. The skull, just an outcropping of rock, just outside the city wall that resembled a skull, apparently. And uh, here people passing through the city gate would witness a stark reminder of Rome's power. This is where crucifixions took place, at a place of passage, at a place where there were many people so that they could draw attention to what happens when you get on the wrong side of Rome, as these three had. And they crucified Him. From all that we know about crucifixion, they would have laid Jesus on the ground, laid Him on a beam and stretched His arms along that beam. Then soldiers would have driven metal stakes into his wrists, attaching him to the beam. With his body dangling from it, they would take poles with crooks and raise up this beam into the air and drop it into place in a slot in the upright post that had already been staked there some time before. Or they would have nailed that cross beam to the post. His body convulsed in shock as severed nerves screamed their message of pain. Muscles cramped with little means of relief. Intense thirst due to the loss of blood heightened the suffering. Flies would have landed on the fresh blood with no way to find relief from them. And two criminals are of course, crucified with Him, we read here in these verses. They suffer the same fate. They have a front row seat. They watch Jesus die as they themselves are dying. And so Jesus suffers indescribable torture at the hands of these Roman soldiers. And of course, they too watch. They've seen it all before. They're callous to this. But never have they heard what Jesus now says. And we come at verse 34 to a number of sayings that take place, responses that take place at the foot of the cross in the vicinity of Christ, where Christ is crucified. Verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What does He mean? I, I don't think it's a prayer that every sin they had ever committed would somehow just be forgotten and swept under the carpet. But it's a prayer that God would not hold them accountable for crucifying Him, for they cannot discern the gravity of their crime. Ultimately, certainly, it is a prayer that they would repent of all of their sins and seek the forgiveness of God. And perhaps even in just watching Jesus die, they will be led to that place. To know that something unique has happened here, and we do have indication at least from one soldier that he saw this as something very unique so jesus prays for their forgiveness with indescribable mercy jesus prays for the highest good of those who are killing him father forgive them for they know not what they do what are they doing in response verse 34 they cast lots to divide his garments customary for soldiers to keep the clothes of executed criminals as jesus prays for them they strip him of his dignity and they gamble for his clothing verse 35 and the people stood by watching i think that's a key phrase they're watching 
They're watching Jesus die. They're observing Him as He breathes His last in these hours. A riveting horror. But others not only watch, but verse 35 continuing says that the rulers scoffed at Him, saying He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He is the Christ of God, His chosen One. The rulers taunt Jesus. He saved others, probably referring to His healing ministry. He rescued others from their plight. Let Him rescue Himself from this plight that He's in. And you'll notice here, they taunt Him as the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The Messiah that God has promised to send and to crush Satan's head and to deliver Israel. They recognize His self-claims. They recognize the claims that will be taken up in much fuller, with much fuller throat by His followers soon to come. They know He claims to be the Messiah sent from God, the Chosen One. To rescue his people. But they taunt him with this. Of course not believing it. If he is the Christ of God. His chosen one. Let him save himself. We see the soldiers again in verse 36. Joining in on the mockery. They mock him as well. Coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying if you are the king of the Jews. Save yourself. What a joke. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And that too is a joke. So what happens to the king of the Jews? Crucified on a Roman cross. Quite the conqueror, Jesus, they were saying. Quite the conqueror. What they would never understand is that Passover lambs do not rescue themselves. They give their lives to save others. So while He dies in the place of sinners, while He takes the position of the sinner, they howl against Him in mockery. We might say it in our terms to put a title over it all, loser. What a loser. While he bleeds for sin, sinners make sport. Now that we come to the focus of these two criminals who die next to Jesus, beginning at verse 39. Well, they're right with everyone else. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He railed against him. The word means to revile, to defame, to blaspheme him. He speaks against him, and the Greek text indicates that he continued to do this. A crucified man has to gain every breath by lifting his body on pierced feet. There's precious little air. And this guy's spending it, reviling Christ. He's bitter. He's angry. He cares not for Jesus. Save yourself and us. If you are who you say you are, then deliver us from our plight. It was the right prayer. It was the right prayer. He just had the wrong definition of save. 
and he had no belief. It's really his prayer here is very parallel to what the Israelite nation was praying concerning Christ. They were saying, indeed, demanding to be delivered on their own terms. A physical rescue from their predicament. That's what he wants. He did not believe Jesus could actually deliver, nor did he want anything to do with Christ's saving rescue from the sin that got him in this mess in the first place. What he wanted was to rub Jesus like a rabbit foot and get what he wanted even though he didn't believe it was possible. I wonder, maybe you've treated Jesus that same way. Oh, it doesn't look so vile, and it's maybe not done, of course, in this way, but maybe you've treated Jesus similarly. By breaking God's law, by doing what you know God does not approve, Your life has spiraled downward and you've gotten yourself in all sorts of mess. And then you desperately, perhaps even bitterly at times, challenge Jesus to rescue you. Save me. Get me out of this trouble. Deliver me. Yeah, I didn't think so. It's that same spirit. Yeah, I didn't think so. It's not faith in Jesus. It's just seeking to get Jesus to do what you want him to do. To rescue you from the consequences of your own sin. Save yourself and us says this criminal. Well, Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is indeed the Messiah, the Savior. But ironically, if he saved himself from the cross, he could save no one else. To call upon the legion, the legions of angels that were ready to leap into action at his slightest command would mean to abandon sinners to their sin. So I ask you here, perhaps you've even used Jesus this way. But for every one of us, who is hanging here on the cross? Who do you see there? Who is this one who is dying? He was dying in the place of sinners so as to suffer the penalty of God's wrath against them. This is what the scriptures clearly teach consistently. The apostle Peter said in chapter 2 and verse 24 of his first epistle, he Himself, And here's how we should be viewing and watching Christ die. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took the due judgment of our sin and there died in the place of the sinner. 3.18, he says, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The righteous dying in the place of the, the, unri- the righteous dying in the place of the unrighteous that he might bring the unrighteous to God. So Jesus was pro- providing a rescue from trouble, a rescue far worse from t- trials far worse than crucifixion. 
This man was going to face trouble far worse than that in very short order. As a lawbreaker, as a blasphemer, but tragically the man saw none of this. He mocked Jesus and Jesus apparently said nothing. It was a condemning silence. Verse 40. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Now, what we don't see here in the text is that this rebuke reflects a radical change in the perspective of criminal number two. Here's where Matthew confirms that. Chapter 27, verse 44, he confirms that this man too was mocking Jesus. So something has changed as he watches Jesus die. His orientation to Jesus undergoes a radical change. He rebukes the other criminal, exhorting him to fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. Which seems to mean something like, you're in no position to judge anyone. We are all under the judgment of God. God will render the perfect verdict against this man, against you, and against me. Who are you to be judging him? It's a complete shift in his orientation. We find also in Matthew 27 that both men were robbers, along with whatever else they might have done. They were thieves. They had broken the command of God, thou shalt not steal. This man knows and owns his sin. But as he looks at Jesus, he says, in contrast, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus is being punished for wrongdoing. But the man realizes the wrongdoing is not Christ's own. So he sees his sin, he sees Christ's righteousness, and now he appeals to Jesus for mercy. For he says in verse 41 of himself and of this man, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And so he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's an amazing statement. And it shows the man to have changed dramatically while watching Christ die. You are Messiah, he's saying. You are the Messiah that will receive David's throne. Your kingdom is not here right now, but when you receive it, please receive me into it. It's an amazing realization, but let's remember, many people mock this comment. There's no way on earth any criminal is going to put that together on a cross. But let's remember, this man is an Israelite. We can assume then, on the basis of what he says here, that he has been schooled in the Old Testament Scriptures on some level to know that a son of David will reign and receive the throne of God. That Messiah will be sent to rescue his people and will reign as king. He knows that much. He's not hanging there as a secular agnostic. He's hanging there as an Israelite who has heard the teachings of Scripture on some level. He couldn't get around it in that culture, in that setting. 
So as an Israelite who knows the promises of Scripture that Messiah will one day inherit David's throne and rule the nations as king of kings, the criminal has contemplated all of the ridicule. And what has he been hearing? He's the king of the Jews, if he could see that written. He's the Christ, the chosen one of God. He begins to put all this together, and as he watches Jesus die, he says, indeed he is. All the ridicule apparently led him to wonder if that's not actually God's Messiah hanging there on that cross next to me. Watching Jesus die, he comes to believe that Jesus is the one on whose shoulders the government will rest, the increase and the peace of which will never end. He rules from David's throne over the kingdom as Isaiah has prophesied. This is the one. And in a simple plea for mercy, the sinner reaches out to Christ. He does not know how this is going to happen. Maybe Jesus will come down from the cross. Maybe he will defeat Rome and establish the kingdom. He doesn't know. Maybe Jesus will die. Certainly seems that he will. But this one, he concludes, will enter into the kingdom. Indeed, he will rule that kingdom. And all he does, without any other knowledge of what to do, is just metaphorically raise his hand. And say, will you remember me? Receive me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, and Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus and this criminal will die soon. They will die. They will not cease to exist. There's a difference. Dying is the separation of the body from the Spirit. And when we watch someone die, this is fairly visible in front of us as that last exhale is taken and then the Spirit leaves the body. There's a transformation that is as palpable as seeing a baby take the first breath. There is a separation of body from spirit. The material aspect of the human being separated from the immaterial aspect. Jesus promises to bring the man with him to paradise today. Paradise, the realm of departed spirits who are declared righteous before God. We look ahead to verse 46. Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I commit myself, but the body, of course, is going to stay on earth. I commit my spirit. Today, he says to this criminal, your spirit will be with me in paradise. Jesus' body, in verse 53, is taken off the cross, interred in a tomb. And when we come to chapter 24, we find the reuniting of the Spirit of Christ with the body of Christ in His resurrection, of which we've sung much and spoken much this morning. But we do not cease to exist when we die But who we are cannot be ultimately destroyed. And so our very presence, our very awareness, our 
immaterial being, our spirit, enters into eternity. You, he says to this criminal, will enter eternity with me. Then one day, yet future, what has happened to the body of Christ, spirit and body reunited, will take place in the life of those who know Christ, who have identified with his death and resurrection as body in a way we cannot explain, can't explain creation either, but in a way that we cannot explain, body and spirit will be reconstituted in resurrected form to be like Christ's resurrection body. Philippians 3 and verse 21. Now as we think of this repentant thief for just a few moments, this repentant robber and criminal, this one executed, who now will enter paradise with Christ, there's a few ideas I think we must leave with. Jesus did not come to rescue the self-righteous He came to call sinners to repentance. And at the very end of his life, as he gives his life away, he demonstrates this reality. This man was not among the righteous. In anyone's mind, this man did not earn his salvation by good works. The key to his being with Christ in paradise was to repent of his sin, not perform. He can't perform up there, really. We also learn that Jesus can rescue any sinner from all sin. No sin and no sinner is greater than Jesus' power to save. He can rescue you despite your sin. And this man gives us that hope. Maybe I'm talking to one person here. Maybe I'm talking to many. I don't know. But the thought may go through your mind repeatedly. God could not forgive me. I'm unforgivable. You're not. The power of Christ to forgive sinners is greater than anyone's sin. And if you came to church today to hear nothing else, hear that. He can save you. He can forgive any sin. And you might say, well, I don't know that I I like that idea. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the people I've hurt. You don't know the things that I've done. How can he just forget it? He doesn't forget it. We're watching him die. To bear the penalty of our sin. It's not forgotten. It's fully judged by Christ. But here is the good news. He didn't come to rescue the self-righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. Now, if you want to cling to your sin and you want to hold on to your idols and you want to add Jesus to the shelf of the gods that you're worshiping in your heart, forget it. It won't work. He is the Lord. Not one among many. But He calls us to repentance. He calls us to turn from our sin and our self-dependence. And He can save anyone. The key is to acknowledge that you have broken the law of God over and over again and to turn your back on that 
on who you are and to receive the forgiveness that he provides. If you can look at your sin as a big bag of bricks on your back, I want to encourage you today. Jesus will take it. He'll take it from you. Secondly, we need to gain from this passage, not only that he came to rescue sinners, to call them to repentance, but Jesus did not come to reward the self-righteous. He came to bring sinners to paradise when they die. This was his effort. This was his mission. This was his uh, uh, calling from God. The criminal had nothing close to a full knowledge of who Jesus was, but he rightly saw Jesus as God's Messiah. He rightly saw him in some sense as the bridge between where he was in his sin, in his judgment, and where Christ would be in his kingdom. Jesus was that bridge. What we must see today are two basic concepts. Jesus' death pays the penalty of sin and provides the means of forgiveness for those who believe. And we must see an empty tomb, the victor over death. Seeing these concepts, grasping these concepts is the key. One criminal was lost to the consequences of his sin. He did not enter paradise that day. And that is a common outcome, Christ told us. But the other criminal did enter paradise that day. As will you if you come to see Jesus for who he is and turn from your sin to trust him as your savior from sin and from hell. He came on that mission to take us to God. But thirdly, I think we can see here that Jesus did not come to commend the self-sufficiency of the self-righteous. He did not come to tell us we're pretty good people if we'll just straighten a few things out. He came to call His people to union with Him, to identify with His death and with His resurrection ultimately. Now, this criminal cannot see all of that historically yet from his perspective. All he does is cling to Christ. But as we come to recognize what the New Testament continues to unpack for us, it is that we find our very identity in the death and resurrection of Christ. I die to self and who I am and to my own self-righteous deeds. And I unite in my identity with Jesus Christ crucified to bear the penalty of sin and risen in conquest over death and hell. I become a new person. I take on a new identity in union with Christ crucified and risen. And every one of us, it might be fast, it might be slow, we're all going to take the last breath. And when we take that last breath, we are going to go into eternity in united to self, dependent on self, or we're going to go into eternity 
identified with Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. We will identify with the vast majority here this day who don't need Jesus. We may not be as sinister as some who mocked Him and ridiculed and scoffed at Him, who belittled His statement that He was the Christ of God and the Chosen One. We may not be those who ridicule and mock that. Hey, we go to church after all. But we might be among the people who just stand by and watch. We hear it, we learn of it, we read it, we see it. But I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'll take care of myself. Or will we identify with this criminal, this sinner, this one who did not see himself as self-righteous, as earning the favor of God, but this one who simply reached out to Christ and said, I need you. Entering with our last breath, our spirit leaving our body, identified with the crucified and risen conqueror of death. That's how to die. And that's how to live. You'll never be more alive than if you have identified with Christ crucified and risen. I call each of us to that response today in faith. Let's bow for prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for the words of the Spirit to the church today. We pray in behalf of those separated from Christ whose identity is in themselves. Perhaps in some extension it's with their nation, their family. But it stands firmly rooted in self. I pray that you would open their eyes to see the wonder of identifying with Christ crucified and risen. Bring them to that light today. Bring them to that place of faith. Lord, for those of us who have come to turn from our sin to hold out our hand and embrace the work that Jesus has done. We just pause here to give you thanks. We thank you that our old self has been crucified with him and that his resurrection life has been given to us as a gift. In this we rejoice, in this we give thanks, and in this we find ourselves the meek of the earth, for we know our sin and we know the rescue that we don't deserve. But we praise you for this calling. We pray that we would represent Christ faithfully this day. We ask that here in this place you will have received glory and honor for your name. And I pray that as we leave this place and live out our lives each day, that we would say, I belong to Christ. Jesus is my identity. Crucified for the forgiveness of sins and risen in conquest over death and judgment. In this message, we rest our very beings. And we pray that someday you will receive our spirit into paradise until we are reunited with our bodies in resurrection and walk in the train of Jesus' glorified body in the presence of our Savior 
and in your presence as our God for eternity. In this hope, we rest this day. And thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.